0: Love, talk, radio. Good morning, this is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo is the President of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the Board of Directors of the Academy, as well as a Vice President and Wealth Advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several broad topics, along with our lightning round. As always, we include questions and information from you, our listeners. If you have a question or a comment, please feel free to email us anytime, either during the show, before the show, after the show, or anytime in the month between our shows. And all you have to do is send your email to info at worldbusiness.org. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas that reflect the views and values of the World Business Academy. Today we're going to be focusing on two general topics. The first is reflections on comments made by the San Francisco Federal Reserve economists and what we need to do to protect ourselves in the months going, and the years actually, going forward. And the second topic is going to be looking back at Europe and the big question mark, what's going to be happening there. During our lightning round, we will be looking at a series of quick insights on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. So, Ronaldo, as I said before, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present our members with concrete, actual ideas that reflect the World, Academy's, or I'm sorry, World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society to our audience. Can you expand on this in regards to today's topics and explain exactly what this means and entails?
1: Well, I think that... Starting with what it means, thank you, Howard, for the introduction. Um, for all of our listeners and members, I'm just um, delighted that we gave it, as I do every December, we gave the, Acad- the Academy's point of view uh, on the economy for the year 2012, and we were able joyfully to report that we thought the economy would be up uh, anywhere from the 2.2% that some economists thought would happen, most, I guess, thought would be at least 2 And we thought it could hit as high as 3%. Um, we confirmed that view in January's call that it looked to us like that we were on a track for that kind of expansionary growth. And uh, the February numbers that have come in, I mean the January numbers that came in on the 1st week of February, uh, would further underscore that that's correct. And there's a lot of really good things happening in that regard. Uh, tax revenues, collections in at least 17 states are running ahead of uh, expectations. The federal government itself had more than a 6% increase in revenue from existing, uh, from, from just the bounce back in the economy that's already been, Taxed in effect, so revenues are increasing. Uh, we still have a terrible, terrible drag on the economy with public sector firings. Uh, the federal government, states, and local governments are continuing to let people go at a horrific rate, uh, which is causing a real drag. When you consider how many jobs the private sector has created, and, and it's kind of interesting—we we went from losing what seven hundred fifty thousand jobs a month the first month Obama was in office, and now we we're, we flipped it by a million jobs a month because we're now adding two hundred fifty thousand a month. That number can and should be higher if the the state uh, governments would stop uh, trying to whack back the public sector. Um, There are plenty of things that are reasonable that can be done to reestablish the appropriate balance between public sector unions and the states in which they operate, but the, 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 the vigor with which certain administrations, I would pick on Ohio, Wisconsin, and a few others are going at this, uh, clearly, it's more union busting than it is about economy building. And what I want everybody to know is, even though we're looking at that three percent number to get hit, and by the way, uh, just last uh, a couple of days ago, uh, Secretary Treasury Timothy Geithner came out and said he thought it could go as high as three percent. That's the first time anybody's agreed with our position. But I think that the key issue here is people need to be extremely vigilant. We're a long way from out of the woods, and there are things we've got to keep demanding that our politicians do if we're going to stay out of the woods. Example: It's February. We haven't passed the extension. That we need to pass by the end of this month For payroll tax deduction That would have a huge negative impact on the economy If we don't a Continued um, firings of public sector workers In the state In particular state level Local level Really uh, unacceptable And they're going to cause a continued drain The private sector is doing a great job But it can only go so far And I don't think you're going to see the turnaround in housing Until we till we see a bottoming out Of, those, uh, of the reduction in payroll in, in 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 the public sector so those are some general thoughts uh but i'm really pleased to say it's a good time to be back looking at the economy and seeing it move forward we're going to cover europe in the second half of the show so i won't touch on that just now other than to say of course it's a big question mark but uh I'm, I'm delighted that we're back in a situation where it's safe to invest in stocks bonds and securities in america uh and i'm hoping we stay that way
0: indefinitely oh good thank you ronaldo um, again, our first topic is reflections on comments made by the uh, economists of the San Francisco Federal Reserve. I'm actually going to intro that topic, and, Ronaldo we're going to flip roles here a little bit today. Uh, last week I had the opportunity and the honor to first have dinner with one of the economists from the San Francisco Reserve, Federal Reserve Office, Gary Zimmerman, and also the former governor of the San Francisco um, Federal Reserve Office, uh, Robert Perry, uh, in conjunction with a program we put on the following morning at Cal State Channel Islands here in Ventura County, California, um, where Gary gave uh, his analysis of the economy, where we've been, where they're going. Uh, and this was the third year in a row we had one of the officers from the Fed speak to this uh, group. And among the biggest comments um, and changes that was noted by Gary, who's been with the Fed for many, many years in a number of different capacities, is that the Federal Reserve has had an enormous shift in fundamental policy about communication with the public and the business community. And they see that communication with the public as actually one of their policy options, whereas before, any decision they made was often a surprise or last-minute announcement uh, Howard, tended,
1: Howard, Howard, I'd like to just explain it for people because they might not realize what the shift means. It, it, it basically, you're talking about the policy that used to be basically the, the Fed said nothing was tight-lipped and you had to wait till the notes were officially released weeks later to find out what really happened.
0: And that's now
1: exactly. – If now, they, now, they would, release notes at all. Yeah, Well, of course – On because,
0: many of the topics.
1: Yeah, many topics. Now,
0: under sure. Bernanke, and particularly since 2008, they've completely turned that around to where they make a point – of announcing their intentions and their long-range plans, not just short-range and not just the next-day plans, but long-range plans, and you can access all of this information on the various websites of the different Federal Reserve branches. You can actually see their comments their statements, their research, their analysis, and so forth, uh, because they believe that a well-informed public, and particularly business and banking public, are going to make decisions based on what Based on longer-term assumptions coming out of the Fed Reserve,
1: yeah. and let's make it. Exa- let's just use an example. So the, the big one last week, of course, was there t- uh, ten days ago was the the decision to announce that the Fed intended to keep interest rates low through 2013, which is two years ahead. No,
0: 2014, actually. Through
1: 2014,
0: right? And, pretty- and
1: and the question is, of course, how that helps the business community. Why don't you explain why that kind of disclosure, which is new, causes the business community to have more information and what that information can be used for?
0: Well, again, if you know and you're a business that interest rates are going to be stable, it's going to determine how you do your purchasing, your borrowing, your lending, Uh, depending on what capacity and what role you're in, you know either how stable or how unstable things are going to be going forward. So if you know rates are going to be low, you're more willing to uh, make longer-term investments and getting things back if you're suddenly not in danger of running into massive inflation. Now, what they actually are communicating, which is more important other than just the fact they are communicating, um, is some, some key interesting facts. Um, their inflation target right now is 2%. The primary goal of the Federal Reserve, which comes into conflict with a lot of politicians on both sides of the fence, is for stability and growth. They have really essentially no inflation ex- expectation next few years. Real growth, um, they still look at it, is in the 2 to 2.5% category maybe slightly higher. They mentioned that last year, real growth was also in that range and would have been almost a full percentage point higher in terms of recovery if the federal, state, and county governments did not engage in job layoffs. Meaning, even as we're trying to stimulate the economy, the governments that operate the economy were messing it up by laying off more and more people. Now, there's arguments on both sides of that, why that may or may not have been beneficial, but it certainly had a drag on the economy. Looking forward into 2011, uh, they know, I'm sorry, 2012, they noticed that at the end of last year we had pickup. They expect the first half of this year to be a little bit slower than before, but still improving. Uh, they also noted that very clearly, as Ronaldo and I spoke about last year, that the triple meltdown in Japan had a major impact on worldwide growth that we're still trying to, to recover from. By the way, just a quick
1: footnote for those who didn't notice it uh the current accounts deficit in, in the current account surplus in japan uh is the lowest this last year, two thousand and eleven in fifteen years and and the significance of that folks means that the Japanese yen, which is a very strong currency uh is based upon the current account surplus i e they they ship more stuff than they bring in, they export more than they import, and that current account shrinking as it is is significance particularly when you combine it with the political instability in Japan and the fact that Fukushima to this day continues to go off with nuclear reactions every day. The Fukushima has not been stopped yet. Most people forgot that, and they got off the front page. So there's a lot of things working against uh, uh, Japan right now, and they don't seem to have the political will to adjust to it. The current accounts are beginning to show it. And I'm looking for instability um, to increase in Japan in the near term. Um, I don't think it's going to throw the world economy into a tizzy, but it's something people aren't looking at yet that they should. And once the, we get past the European crisis in March, which I think we will, watch people start to refocus on Japan.
0: Uh, you do get a sense that the Japanese are almost blind to what's actually going on. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it just seems everyone says, okay, if the government says we're okay, we're okay, rather than a lot of questioning going on. But that's that's another topic. Let me just finish up here uh, other comments from the Fed, which I think are very relevant to our listeners. Um They first mentioned that the recession, which really began in their mind back in 2007, is definitely, as we've all experienced, uh, but they have the statistics to show it, it's the longest and deepest going back to the post-World War II era. That positive side, current job growth, as Ronaldo mentioned earlier, is actually up, uh, and it has approached the average level for job creation that we've seen over the past 18 years. The caveat is that average growth, of new jobs is not sufficient to make up the nearly $8 million, I'm sorry, $8 million jobs that were lost during the crash.
1: Yeah, by the way, just to put that in context for people so they can grasp it, Howard, 2011 saw, saw the same people, number of people employed as were employed in 2001, 10 years earlier, and the population's increased. Right. So it's, just, it's important to note that we have to absorb new people, new entrants to the workforce as well as rehire those who are unemployed. So that's part of the pressure uh, also, by the way, it also is part of the lift for the economy because it creates new buying patterns, et cetera.
0: Right. One of the other comments they did make, and they always show the statistic, Gary showed it last year as well, is what they call the alternate unemployment rate, which is not the unemployment rate you hear on the news, which right now is at uh, low since the crash around eight and 8.5, I think it was, Ronaldo, um, or 8.3. Yeah. Anyway, the alternate unemployment rate tracks all of those people who are out of the job market completely, who have stopped looking, people who are underemployed, uh, people whose benefits may have run out and aren't counted in some other capacity. And that one is approximately not quite double, and that actually has a name. It's called the U6 number. And by
1: the way, let me jump in when you get through this because I want to just make a comment about that.
0: Certainly. Um, They note that it's approximately 15% nationally, though here in California, where we all live, it's closer to 20%, still a significant number. And in part, because of all these, and the housing crisis, right now the housing affordable index is at an all-time high. Catch-22 is, unless you have really good credit and credit scores, it's extremely difficult to get the kind of financing. Let
1: me go into two things here, Howard. One is the the underemployed or the people who aren't looking category. An interesting phenomenon happened for the very first time uh, in 2011, and that is that the number of female undergraduates now exceeds the number of male undergraduates. And one of the reasons why that apparently this is happening is many, many females have chosen to use the recession, when employment is hard anyway, to go back to school, to develop new skills, to retrain, so they can re-enter the workforce after that retraining period. So it actually is turning out that we are creating a new education lift for what will be able to be hired, particularly in the female population. Uh, in the next two years, three years. So that's a good thing. Um, The underemployment actually numbers are very tough to calculate. The Academy first started reporting on this number three or four years ago, uh, and uh, we pointed out how big the number was at that time because there was nobody paying attention to it. In having studied it closely now for over four years, it's clear to me that a big part of that is not just women who went back to school, which is a good thing. It's not just men who go back to school for retraining. That's a good thing. It's, it's also about people who are 55 years old and older who end up having to settle for flipping burgers instead of a middle-class job. Uh, there's, 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 a, there's a tremendous amount of underemployment. It's, it's about the airline pilot who's making 40% less today because even Americans are now going through a bankruptcy. So there, there's, 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 these underemployment issues are very, very thorny. And what it comes down to ultimately for you, me, and everybody listening on this call is we need the government to be more proactive And remembering that jobs is the issue, Uh, we don't have a uh, we don't have a a deficit problem in this country now. We have a revenue shortfall problem, which we've talked about about many times. But the real issue is jobs, and anything we do that takes jobs off the front burner hurts us all. So when I see contraception being given the airtime that it has, when there is no serious constituency in America, including American Catholics who don't believe in contraception. And that, that gets thrown up as the big issue when, in fact, the real issue is jobs, jobs, jobs. So I'm hoping that everybody keeps alert to this, keep your politicians at whatever state, federal, national, and international level focused on it, because that's the way we get from here to there. Uh, you know, the other thing I want to point out is the austerity measures that the European Union is engaging in, which we'll be talking about later, are not working. The three countries who tried the hardest with them are all in the tank doing severe double dip recessions. Spain and of course England. And I think you'd have to argue Ireland as well. And my guess is that you'd call it Portugal, it's just not one of the three majors. So I'm I'm suggesting in this comment that people really need to be alert at the political process so we don't get confused with a lot of silliness thrown at us. We keep focused on we must create more jobs and they have to be better paying jobs which is why I'm extremely happy with what's happened in Michigan, for example. So here in Michigan, you have a Ford motor just announced the largest profit or second-largest profit in the history of the company, $20 billion. Uh, their operating profit was eight, at least 8% higher than it was last year alone. The profits came from North America because the the automobile industry in America got bailed out. They're losing money in Europe, but they're making money in America. GM has recaptured the title of the largest automobile manufacturer in the world. And the state of Michigan has got a surplus in its budget for the first time in years. And by the way, the Ford auto workers who agreed just last year to a renewed contract and got a thirty-seven hundred and fifty dollar advance bonus on this year's performance just heard yesterday they're going to get an additional three or four thousand dollar bonus every single worker. So there's lots pumps of good a lot things
0: of money into that economy.
1: It pumps a lot in the economy. There's a lot of good stuff happening, and that's in the manufacturing sector. So, I just want to point out that there's some really good news happening, and that should give us the encouragement to keep doing the right things, not to stop doing them and cause us to fall back.
0: Right, very much so. And I just want to mention the very last point that uh, Gary made was the downside risk, which we're going to talk about in the second half of our show, of what's going on with Europe and whether or not they can resolve their issues. As I mentioned to them, the European strategy seems to be named after an obscure city in Bulgaria called muddling through. That seems to be their highly scientific method for trying to fix the economy. But we we're going to talk about it in the second half. Ronaldo, any other comments you want to make on the general economy? Uh, for example, I noticed this morning there were stories in all the newspapers that suddenly oil is going to spike through the roof. And the oil industry, in its typical fashion, to try to make as much profit as they can before the election cycle, has filtered out information that oil will spike Uh, spike up until Memorial Day and then slide back down again even though it actually hasn't gone up yet even though there's been no significant impact from Iran they're blaming it on Iran this year there's always something to blame it on but yet we're seeing the same pattern um, of an inflationary price in oil that is being publicized in advance knowing it's going to drop down before the elections again and interesting that it comes just as the Federal Reserve and others are noticing that the economy is getting back on track, and the question is, are they in a sense trying to slow it down um by jacking up oil prices, taking advantage of an economic recovery? It's exactly what we saw last spring, just as it was good news on the horizon. Any thoughts on that, Ronaldo?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that um the 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 American public I hope is getting wise to this whole game. Uh, you know, I mean, the theory you have, Howard, is that they do this all the time because they know they have to drop the price of oil come uh, August or September in advance of the elections so they don't trigger more backlash. The truth is there's no reason for oil to be going up right now. Um, at a, at, from a global GDP level, the world's economy is not consuming vast increases in quantities of oil. In fact, to the contrary, uh, consumption in the U.S. is still down. It's negative. It's not, it's not at its high point again. And I expect that consumption in the U.S. will continue to be below the peak because every, uh, not, a, well, the, the average vehicle efficiency, the fleet vehicle efficiency in the United States has improved somewhat dramatically and is going to improve even more starting this year. So when you have, uh, for example, uh, 14 million automobiles were sold in 2011, up from 10 million the year before, 40% increase. Those 14 million automobiles, sure, there's still Escalades in there, and sure, there's still Ford Explorers in there. But at the end of the day, even the Ford Explorer is about 25% more fuel efficient than the old one. So what's happening is the smaller cars, the compacts, the subcompacts, um, you're you're going to see a major change in the number of plug-in electrics or plug-in hybrids, uh, full electrics, the Nissan is here, uh, modified electrics like the Volt. Uh, all these things are coming to the marketplace at the same time. We've we've changed the cafe standards, and now you've got this great ruling from California Air Resources Board, CARB, as it's referred to. Uh, CARB just a couple days ago came up with its uh, its look through the year 2018 and is up the number of vehicles it's going to require to be zero emission. They're calling for the construction of hydrogen fueling stations around California. They're calling for uh, the greater adaptive adaptations to make it easier for people to drive electric cars so these pressures and, and, and California is very much a bellwether state when it comes to cars. If you want to know what America is going to be buying in 5 years from Detroit, look at what California is buying today. And the trend in California is quite clear. So I believe in that cl- that trend is towards more fuel efficient vehicles. At the same time that's happening, the country is getting smarter. I mean, I I just noticed that in Hawaii, the state of Hawaii, which has the highest electricity rates in the in, in the United States, and which is 90% dependent on foreign oil, in Hawaii, the the number of photovoltaic systems being installed has become so numerous that they they're up they bumped they've bumped up against their 15% cap for photovoltaic and they're going to try and change the cap. Well, things like this photovoltaic, everybody in America who doesn't have a hot water heater on their roof should, it's that efficient it'll pay for itself in one to two years. Uh, everybody who hasn't considered double pane windows even in places like California, should. It's going to be very smart for you financially in energy savings. So when you look at all the things that the, the country is going to start doing to green every home, one home at a time, when you look at what we're doing with the average fleet vehicle fleet, and if you look at the way we use oil in the industrial process, which is much more efficient these days, put all that together with a very historically unbelievably low price of natural gas, and I don't see oil going up on market demand. So they may try to push it, Howard, I don't think they're going to pull it off. Remember, You know, they, what they tried last spring didn't really work. They had to back off pretty quick. So I think that what we're going to see is something that is going to be a push for higher oil prices, because Lord knows they have the political muscle. I mean, how, what can you say about a disingenuous industry like the fossil fuel industry when they come on the air with repeated ads selling, telling you that their future is clean coal, which is an oxymoron.
0: Okay? Right. Clean
1: coal are two words that don't belong in the same sense. It's impossible. So... This industry, which is totally disingenuous, which has enormous political clout, and let's not forget, of, of the subsidies for energy use, $16 billion goes to oil and fossil fuels. Only $2 billion goes to renewables. And even with that disproportionate playing field, renewables are catching up dramatically. So I don't think they're going to get away with it. I think the day of King Oil, like the day of King Cotton, you know, 100 years ago, the day of King Oil, I think, is beginning to change. And so, well, I'm not it's sure it's, going to make it sick.
0: It'll certainly be interesting to see. And I just want to remind our listeners too that, you know, in power transmission, for example, from centralized systems, 40 percent of the electricity generated, whether it's a coal or natural gas plant, is lost simply in the transmission of electricity from centralized plants to ultimate consumers. And that one of the benefits of individualized or localized solar systems or other alternative energy systems is the immediate savings of that 40% that's lost in transmission, which means overall you're not only reducing your own consumption, you're reducing that surplus consumption, which significantly should reduce the overall cost of systems. And it's why the fossil fuel industry is fighting like crazy to uh, stay preeminent.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And for those people who are not familiar with the Academy's Energy Task Force work, uh, we've long been advocates of um, eliminating grid-tied energy uh, creation. In other words, the idea of a smarter grid is a good thing, but it's it's like um, it, 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 it's putting a tourniquet on you know an amputated arm. It's it just it's it's not going to do the the job. Smart grids are inherently, for the reasons you just gave, are inherently inefficient, and it's time for us to generate energy where we use it. So it's called distributed generation, distributed use. So the smaller you can make the unit that's creating the energy, i.e. a rooftop, the more localized you can make the use of it, i.e. the home. That works out also by neighborhoods and by regions. So the idea of trying to build a massive inner tide grid is not only 40% inefficient, as Howard correctly points out, it won't happen for another reason. It takes more than 10 years to get any high-speed transmission line built in America, and that's if you're lucky. If you're T. Boone Pickens and you're a billionaire, you still can't get it done. In. And you abandon a wind farm idea because you can't get the energy to market. I think that's all of these idea. things, by the way, are tied to one other factor that's really important, Howard, and that is, as you know, the Academy does a lot of work with the Pentagon and and trying to uh, use the Pentagon's in the initiative towards green fuels as a way to help spark that in the civilian sector. And, and it's, there's no question that the military is pushing really hard now to get off of fossil fuels as fast as they possibly can, and I'm looking for significant breakthroughs uh, in the in the near term. Now, if we were to have an election and a retrograde thinking process took hold, where we you know drill baby drill became the mantra, or you know we, there's nothing wrong with America that more natural gas and coal can't fix, then we're going to have we're going to hit a, b- a brick wall. But on the assumption that the American public has been beat up enough and is willing to protect themselves so that they don't get stuck with higher and higher fuel bills, with the one exception that all commodity prices rise during inflationary periods. And we are looking at a period of inflation this year coming up of a minimum of 2 to 3%, I would guess. So there's certainly not less than 2%. And in that case, there's a slight creep in gas, but not the kind of creep that causes oil to be able to boost itself from the current level uh, to another $20 a barrel, which they'd like to get in Canada.
0: Certainly. Well, at this point, it's actually time to switch into our uh, lightning round and, again, a series of quick insights on various asset classes. We've already touched on fuel and oil, but we still have bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. So your thoughts on these?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, first of all, uh, we we just did oil, so it's a great transition. So we're looking for uh, – basically, I'm looking for moderate price stability with oil. There will be some minor fluctuations and spiking – In the absence of a major conflict, I don't think the Straits of Hormuz are going to be closed, which would drive the price of oil up dramatically. I don't think there will be any other major disruptions. If there are, of course, all bets are off. By the way, watch Nigeria. If there's a disruption, it's more likely there than the Straits of Hormuz. You've got the the insurgents in Nigeria are battling with more weaponry now than ever before. Uh, The government has been completely deaf to the plight of their own people. Uh, it's a kleptocracy where the top aristocrats may take all the money and leave the people dealing with the with with, with with the back end of the pipeline and all the worst um pollution issues, literally oil soaking their farming land and no money. So you've got a and you've got now you've got a an active unfortunately because it's gone on so long and Shell has funded it, in the Nigerians, that now you have an active Muslim kind of jihadi ingredient along with the economic uh, insurgency so when you, one when you of the, look at one of,
0: the, one of the other factors that may destabilize that region in general of central Africa and uh, west central Africa is after the fall of Libya a lot of the mercenary troops that were fighting on behalf of Gaddafi fled back to their home countries Chad and other places um, bringing with them a lot of the weaponry that they had in Libya and then Introducing that back into their home countries, adding a degree of uh, potential destabilization. Um, well, there's that, that. may there's filter there's as far west as Nigeria.
1: Yeah, no, there, there's that. But I think the real problem in Nigeria is that the Shell Oil Company has just been brain dead and with a deaf ear to the plight of the people there, and they haven't forced enough social change to protect their own long-term economic interests. And we Nigeria is a major source of oil for the United yeah. States, so. We can't look blithely at that, apart from the human rights issues, which are enormous in Nigeria. I mean, like, why on earth aren't we slapping their fingers pretty bad and getting that country to clean up its act? I don't know. If I were Shell Oil, I would do it, because if they don't, they're going to find out they're going to be on the losing side of a civil war. At the very least, they're going to see increasing damage, which is already occurring, to their pipelines. So the loss of oil from that alone could be huge. Uh, the other thing I want to just comment on with regard to the, the uh, commodities is gold, because it's all the, all the rage now, and you're hearing it in the Republican debates and the Republican uh, presidential campaigns. Uh, there are people like Newt Gingrich who's calling for a commission to review gold, although the two people he proposed to lead it are both known gold bugs, so I don't think it's a commission. It's probably a stealth move to go back to gold. I think he's also doing that to appeal to Ron Paul supporters, because Ron Paul has been very active in saying go back to gold. Uh, it's it's a very interesting question.
0: Ronaldo, <laughs> Gold. Before, actually, before you go on and go, let me just interject a quick question here. Given the Republican primaries and what just happened the other day with Rick Santorum suddenly surging forward, do we think this is the the end of Gingrich as a major player and that Santorum is going to hold the right-wing flag for the Republican Party as we move forward in this campaign? Or is that too transitory at this point to tell?
1: Well, you know, I think that... Um, People have made the mistake of counting Newt Gingrich out too soon in the past, as you know, twice in this cycle alone. But I think in this particular case, I think the die is cast. And the reason is as much to do with Romney as it does with Santorum. Romney is so antithetical to the conservative base of the Republican Party, the anybody-but-Romney movement will not stop till it gets its anybody-but-Romney candidate. It's decided, I believe. That Santorum is a better candidate for that position than Gingrich. They're probably correct in that regard. In other words, Santorum galvanizes the conservative base. Gingrich was acceptable to them, but when, when um, Romney unleashed his enormous packs, I mean, the amount of firepower that went into Florida particularly, and some of the places where he's been running these incredible ads, uh, basically there's just too much dirt on Gingrich. And when you unload $10 million worth of ads on, your, on somebody's head, it comes back to haunt. And I don't think Gingrich can recover from that. Whereas Santorum, uh, his biggest issue when they start unloading the firepower on him is going to be, he was one of the leading guys in the Congress who used earmarking. He's got some real problems with that. He's also got some problems with uh, money he's taken since he left office, uh, given to him by interest that he championed when he was in office. Uh, Santorum is not lily white when it comes to money in politics. Where he is, quote, Lily White, is because he's the, apparently the only person in America who's willing to say that they don't believe in contraception and that it shouldn't be allowed. I mean, that is such an extreme position, Howard. I mean, it's,
0: mm-hmm. it,
1: it's baffling to me. Uh, but that kind of an extreme position is exactly what will pay the Republican base. And I believe they're willing to go down fighting with Santorum before they're willing to accept the um, having to hide behind the third set of skirts that, that was married to Newt Gingrich. You know mm-hmm. what I mean, it, it,
0: right? It, right.
1: It's, 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 and, and, and it's not likely to be that Gingrich will resurge. I don't think, and it, we'll see what happens when Romney starts to unload on Santorum. I think the more interesting thing to observe, and, and I, clearly the three losses at night that Romney sustained, is I think uh, I think it's leading more and more to a brokered convention for the Republicans. And then a brokered convention, Santorum has a better chance. In a brokered convention, uh, you could see a very surprising candidate, by the way, like Jeb Bush emerge. So this thing is anything but over. I'm not, I'm not assuming that Romney's going to be the candidate. I'm just assuming Gingrich isn't. And I'm fascinated by how well Ron Paul is doing. I mean, he's the one guy in the race. He's 76 years old. He's got incredible vigor. He's got a great ground game in every state he goes into. And he's got the most consistent message because he's the one guy who said the same thing for 25 years. And people appreciate and respect that, including me. So it's, a, it's an open race on the Republican side. We'll see where it goes. Um, I think they're going to have to adjust their belief that the, the, a negative economy is the only thing they're running on, and I think if they start hauling out these social issues injudiciously, i.e., coming out against contraception, may win you, may win you, 25 to 50 percent of the Catholic vote. It'll lose you the other 50 percent of the Catholic vote, and it will lose you an enormous number of people who consider themselves independent. I don't think women in America are willing to go back to the idea that contraception is a luxury when 14% of all women in America, Howard, 14% use contraception for reasons that are purely medical. Interesting, okay? So what do yeah. those 14% mm-hmm. do if they right. work at a Catholic institution? And, I, and you know, I, I think the fact that 28 states already have an adequate contraception privilege and all the federal rule is doing is enshrining that as a federal law, to me this is much do about nothing to try and keep us off the focus of jobs. Okay, back to gold. So I think gold is going to muddle through. You would call it the state of muddling through, the city of muddling through. Gold will continue to muddle through at about this access. As people know, I was buying gold two and three years ago. I've done extremely well with it. I believe that that uh, investment will continue to perform. If I were not in gold right now, I wouldn't be buying it because I don't see the upside as being enormous. There is some upside with inflation. But I did a calculation with Howard this morning, folks, and the amount of inflation it would take to keep gold at, say, the 1900 level that it was at at the peak is very, very high and not likely to occur. So I see that gold's got as much room to go down as to go up. If you got gold, hold it, and um, each month we'll revisit when you should sell. But at this point, I'm a hold, get ready to sell on gold, not a hold, keep buying or buy on gold. Other commodities that we can talk about, uh, Howard, have to do with the industrialization that's going on in China and India. Both those countries have slowed. China, in the case, by three GDP. Uh, India by at least that, uh, percentage-wise, more. And um, I see uh, India muddling, muddling, muddling. I'm very troubled by uh, the most recent things coming out of India where they barred. Basically, they're going back to the old days when they had a controlled currency, blocked currency. Uh, They're doing it now with blocked retail. They're blocking their economy. It's not going to help the Indians in the long run, and in fact, it's going to hurt them. But the problem in India, like so many other places, is political. The politics of India is just all permished. And, of course, you can say the same thing is true, only worse in other parts of the world. So when you look at other parts of the world that are in trouble, declining Indian consumption, declining Chinese construction, by that I meant consumption, construction, not necessarily personal construction, those combined together to mean there will be less pressure on commodities in the in the next say three to six months, we'll update every month, of course. But I'm expecting that that reduced pressure means that a) there won't be inflation in those sectors, and b) it's not a great time to be buying into raw commodities, particularly if you're buying metals. I think long-term food purchasing still is smart. How's that for the roundup?
0: That sounds good. Anything uh, you want to add on real estate before we move real on? Real
1: estate. Well, thanks for asking. Yeah, um, you know, there's there's so many mixed statistics around real estate. I'm really happy to share those with the listeners. Um, I believe on the national level, the real estate market is bottoming out, has not hit the bottom, but is in such a shallow part of that curve now that we can begin to see that. And then candidly, uh, this huge decision, which could reach $40 billion in size, it was announced at $25 billion, but I think the other services are going to come in, uh, this decision where the state's attorney general and the, and the, and the um, federal government and through the Justice Department have resolved the robo-signing scandal, which will affect easily, easily a couple of million homes and homeowners. Many of those homes are already gone, but it'll put some money in the pockets of the people who were disenfranchised that way. Um, the thing that's good about it is it's setting a tone together with a couple of provisions that got through intact in the um, financial reform rate this the, 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 the um, Reform Act that came through last year, the Dodd-Frank Act that got through, Uh, those combined are causing the banks to have to lend some more. They don't want to for a simple reason. If you don't have to lend, why would you if you could make all the money you want by letting the Fed give it to you, which is what the Fed's been doing? But because of Dodd-Frank, because of the settlement and what it's going to do now to force more legitimate lending, and because the Fed itself is agreeing to buy housing-backed mortgages, it means... I'm predicting that the bottoming out of the of the housing market will occur certainly within the next two quarters and possibly within the next three months. And when you consider that America is somewhat underhoused at the present time, meaning there's more housing stock required based on population than we currently have, I'm looking for the, the resale value of existing housing stocks to bottom out, start to firm, which is good. I'm looking for continuing... Um, depression in the in the new home market because you don't build new arms until you got the mopped up all the foreclosed and existing home stock but that's coming along i'm looking for foreclosures to continue going down quietly it's been going down now for six or seven months and i think that we will see a bottoming out of this market so i'm really hopeful that housing is going to hang in there commercial real estate is behind housing although one can make an argument that based on the pro- corporate profits we're seeing commercial real estate actually is firming nicely. And I can tell you from my own investment in commercial real estate, that appears to be the case. In other words, you, I'm seeing that.
0: You see that moving back up in the long run. Clearly. Yeah, I do.
1: And, uh, you know, I continue to see um, strength in Brazil, by the way. Uh, you didn't ask about it, but the Brazilian industrial development bonds we've been recommending for three or four years are doing extremely well, paid enormous late rates of interest. Uh, the real has held up as we thought it would. It's still at 58 today from where we started talking about it at 44 uh, I think all those things bode very, very well for diversified portfolios and for people getting some of their cash that's been liquid that we've been telling them to sit on the sidelines. There's ways to get that cash to work, and happily the banks are being forced to put some of that cash back out in loans. Notice, lending and consumer sector is up, housing sector is up, and even in the commercial sector, it's up. So banks are starting to lend again because they have no choice.
0: Let me ask you a quick question about Brazil. They're going to be hosting the Olympics in four years Uh, they all of a sudden seem to be running into a lot of infrastructure problems. Collapsed buildings, uh, power lines blowing up because electrical lines are running on top of them inappropriately. All kinds of deep-rooted problems that seem to be emerging as they're trying to uh, put on a very clean, shiny face uh, for the upcoming Olympics, much as China did. uh, It was now eight years ago, six years ago. Yeah, Yeah, I I
1: think, um, first of all... uh, People have to stop and just remember how far Brazil's come in the last 20 years. Uh, that was a country where 3,000% inflation in a given year was not... Actually, they achieved that. They actually did 3,000 one year, 3,000%. So in a country where inflation causes the real to change every five minutes, which is literally what happened for years and years, in a country where which kept having uh, uh, cadillos, uh, military leaders... Uh, in a country that was having a difficult time establishing a democracy, in a country that had a very, very difficult time establishing a firm, non-corrupted commercial sector. When all those challenges were facing Brazil, and in the last 10 years they've come out of them systematically and they've added at least a million to two million people more to the middle class, which is the reverse of what we have did in the United States, I would say the the hiccups you see, Particularly when you when you see the industrial nation hiccups, meaning the, the the power line issue and a couple of those, those are minor disequilibriums. They, they don't they don't point to a deeper structural flaw. What they point to is throwing too many lines up too quick because they were growing so fast. And I think you'll see that, that Brazil needs to go through a period, a longer period, another 10 years of stabilized growth to be able to systematically root out all the things that they threw up quickly. I mean, I've been to Brazil as you know many times, Howard, and and you when you go into certain neighborhoods in São Paulo and you see a light pole and you see like seventy, eighty cords hanging from it, you right. go, Oh my God, this thing's gonna blow the transformer.
0: Right. And you know, right. as much as you see that same thing in India and even yeah. in Europe to a certain extent in some places.
1: Yeah, yeah. so it's so you see that because that's that's just that what happens when you have industrialization is people start wanting the good life, they get to buy the televisions. If they want to hook it up, they can't get enough power. They have to tap illegally into the line, and and you know, the, and, and the government's smart enough to know they can't cut everybody off at once. So it takes years and years. But the good news for Brazil, in my humble opinion, is that the percentage of companies that are family-owned, which is still way way over 60%, and and not publicly traded by the way, have a vested interest in the long-term future of Brazilian infrastructure. The political system is holding together brilliantly in post Lula era, so I believe that you're going to see continuing strength from Brazil, and that's before they even start pumping oil out of the uh, out of their deep wells in two years. So I'm very very bullish that Brazil is going to continue to move, move forward, and the, the the hiccups that they have are the ones you get when you have to grow pretty fast, and then you you know you make mistakes along the way. But nothing that are, I don't think there's an endemic corruption issue in Brazil anywhere near like it existed say even ten years ago.
0: Right. Well, Brazil reminds me that one of the reasons their economy uh, exploded so much in a positive direction was that they started producing their own ethanol fuel from switchgrass, whereas here in the United States for the longest time we were subsidizing uh, corn and other ag products that were really a zero-sum game to make ethanol. Uh, Before we leave this sector, do you want to just make one comment about that?
1: Well, yeah, and by the way, it's also, I mean, I would say that sugarcane ethanol is a much bigger factor in the Brazilian situation than switchgrass. I, I don't think switchgrass is, has anywhere near the impact of the Brazilian economy that, that sugarcane ethanol does. So do.
0: sugarcane is doing it, then. and, and yeah, So Bob, what are we doing here? Here, uh, well, first
1: of all, the, the good news is we eliminated the subsidies for corn ethanol on December 31 of 2011. That's huge. Now, we still have a mandate that you have to oxygenate your gas lean with 15%, and, and ethanol is an oxygenator. But what we should do, and and I don't know why people are sleeping on this in Washington, we should immediately change the law so there's no restriction to using methanol instead of ethanol as that oxygenating agent. Methanol, uh, the brilliance of methanol is it's a way to capture CO2 and put it back in your tank as a a fuel. And it's extremely affordable. It's economically viable today. It's cheaper than corn-based ethanol always was, which is why the law got written, by the way. The reason method the only reason methanol was made illegal for oxygenation is cuz it was cheaper and did a better job than corn ethanol. And corn ethanol had more political stroke.
0: Right. So now and that was- corn
1: ethanol is not getting that subsidy. The nation needs to look at methanol. The military is and everybody smart in the scientific community knows about methanol. You know how you make methanol, Howard? It's really simple thing. You take hydrogen, you take CO2 and you combine them. So you can reburn your CO2 a second time. So it's it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a great transition green technology. The academy is uh, has a great deal of expertise in this area, and uh, we're hoping that the, the government starts to do the rational thing, which is take the restraints off of green tra- transition technologies like uh, methanol,
0: hmm. so we
1: can move the economy forward.
0: Well, that'd be great. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, let's let's move on, and we'll get to our prime topic for the Western Show. By the way,
1: ninety-nine percent of the people listening to this call have never even thought of methanol or heard about methanol.
0: Uh, actually, did not occur to me before you mentioned today either. I'm one of those people.
1: Yeah, watch for it, because it's one of those funny stories about how the political process corrupts science, so we can't deliver a better product to the American public for less that's greener. Right. <laughs> it's amazing to me. It's just amazing to me. Anyway, Politics keep going always this, right?
0: does control everything in the end, oh uh, my unfortunately. Um, so we're going to jump into Europe and, and what to expect there, but you raised something before we went on the air today that I just want to uh, bring up again and have you expand a little bit further on. You said that Goldman Sachs CEO came out in support of the uh, Buffett legislation. You want Volca to expand rule. on that for a moment? The Volcker Rule. Volcker Rule. Volcker Rule,
1: yeah. Okay. The Volcker Rule basically is a catch all phrase that refers to the idea that Glass Steagall was a good idea back in the 30s and we were crazy to get rid of it under the, the last year of Clinton. Um, so the Volcker Rule says if you're going to take deposits, you're a financial institution, you have to keep that on one side of the bank and you can't speculate with that. You can't play gambling games. And you've got to do all your gambling on the other side of the house. For your own account. Up until now, the finance industry, all of Wall Street, monolithically, has done everything they can to kill the Volcker Rule. The Volcker Rule. Uh, the president has come out strongly for it. Uh, Treasury has not been as strong as I would have thought. Uh, all the independent economists that I really respect, like uh, Krugman, um, Stiglitz, uh, uh, Gouldsby, uh, and myself, we all agree that the Volcker Rule is essential. Uh, In fact, if anything, it's it's not strong enough, but it's a step in the right direction, back to Glass-Steagall. Well, Solomon Brothers, which is without a doubt the most potent politically and otherwise financial firm in the world. Goldman
0: Sachs, not Solomon Brothers. Excuse me,
1: Goldman Sachs. The
0: most most potent
1: force in American um, politics for over 100 years, that the chief financial officer, so the guy who's supposed to be in charge of counting the beans for this enormously powerful firm, which basically has undue influence over the U.S. government, has the first firm to break with the pack and say, "You know what? The Volcker rule is a good thing," and uh, I'm really, really pleased about that because he correctly noted in his remarks yesterday that if they if they did a Volcker rule, it actually could increase their their their, tr- their trading profits and give and leave them free with their own private equity monies to go ahead and gamble all they want. And so, if you if you, if you look up um, you, his name is David uh, Vinar, by the way, uh, V I N I A R. I believe is the spelling. Uh, Chief financial officer, and and he, you you, you got to just appreciate that Goldman knows that he's saying this, and therefore this is the Goldman position. I think that's a huge, it's a watershed event. I believe that means we'll get the Volcker rule back, and I got to tell you that's enormously good for American consumers and for the world at large, by the way.
0: Okay, with that, let's move on to my favorite new European village muddling through um and tell us what is going on in Europe, and what do you predict over the next uh next few years
1: okay well i mean let's do let's start with Greece because everybody is focused on it. Greece, as we've said repeatedly in these conversations on on our our monthly call, is not that important to the overall economy of Europe or to the world frankly it has symbolic symbolic uh, importance because. It was on the verge until last night of becoming the first country to have to be forced, basically, out of bankruptcy, in fact, out of, the, out of the euro market. And a lot of people are worried about how that would look and how it would unravel, much more so than I've been. As you know, in these calls, I've been fairly sanguine about whatever happened in Greece. And, in fact, I can make a strong case that maybe it in Greece's interest to drop out of the euro. And I can make a case that it's in the Europeans' interest, the euro, uh, to let them do so, because the euro was put together with no exit mechanism, and that's a fatal flaw. Uh, so... What we're looking at is they are going to qualify now for the next 130 billion euro alone. Uh, The austerity measures there are going to be even worse than what we've seen. The public in in Greece is already rioting. Strikes have been set for tomorrow. Uh, I don't think austerity will solve their problem. But at the same time, uh, the Europeans needed to do something. So any resolution for Greece in the meantime is good to take it off the front burner. The real action in Europe, by the way, as a reflection of that, uh, the Italian government has been credited with um, minor steps, frankly, but enough that it shows that it's going in the right direction. And the Italian government was able to go back to the bond market and, and go back to borrowing at the kind of sovereign rates that one would hope for a stable country, uh, about 3%, uh, down from you know these more than double that at the peak of the crisis. Uh, Spain, likewise, at its most recent bond auction, uh, did well. So... So Europe's settling down, and everybody's kind of holding their breath, waiting to see what's going to happen in March. So in a little over a month from now, the Germans will unveil what the what the final terms of the deal are for that portion of the euro, those countries within the euro, within the euro. So there's 27 in the European market. We're not talking about them. There's 17 that actually use the euro as their currency. Of those 17, some but not all, I predict are going to agree to a new discipline which will cause those 17 to, in effect, agree to some form of political mutual control, i.e., they will be a confederation of some number below 17. And in return for agreeing to give up political sovereignty over their budgets to a, to a, to a group, they will receive the right to have their debt backed by Germany, France, Italy, Spain, and all the other countries that signed that agreement. Uh, that is, this the,
0: treaty. is this the potential for, example, uh, a euro bond in, in the euro, which we really don't have yet?
1: Well, I think what it's going to be is a supra euro bond. In other words, it's going to be a new. Words, see, if, unless well, the way the treaty works, unless you get all seventeen to agree, which I don't think they're going to, and I don't think they even want to, uh, you can't use existing European institutions to create that new bonded indebtedness. It. So it's against the treaty that created the euro. However. If some subset of that 17, let's say 15 or 14, decide that they are willing to trade political autonomy, so some, give up some of their sovereignty, in return for having their debt backed by a new agency, that new agency could be set up in the blink of an eye and would have the backing of all these major European countries, and it would, in, it would then be able to issue indebtedness that anybody in the world would buy because it would be, by definition, inherently more solid and stable than the euro itself. And I believe a secondary market would develop, etc. So, again, I want to use the analogy I used last time. If you think of the 27 countries of the European Union as a big layer cake, and then a smaller one, the second tier of that layer cake, is the 17 countries that sit on top of that. There's some of the 27, but not all, 10 fewer, that are part of the European Monetary Union. They trade in the Euros. Now I want you to think of a third layer on the cake, which is a new treaty, that will create some groups smaller than the 17 that will not only trade in the Euro, but have political as well as monetary union. The people in that smaller top third tier, you can bet, are going to be Germany and are going to be Italy. The question is, will France be in it if, in fact, the election goes against Sarkozy and his party and they have a complete change of of position with regard to Europe in the French elections, which are coming up? That's the uh, the big wild card. I personally believe that even if France drops out, which I don't think they will because it would be economic suicide for France, but if they did... I believe Europe would continue on without them because the Germans, the Spanish, and the Italians together are big enough to, to run the whole game. So I, I'm really looking forward to Europe getting attacked together in March. We can't know for sure until we see that, but the markets are expecting it now. They're believing that the Greek thing is sort of under control, even though it's not really. And I believe what you're going to see is a continual, slow, but methodical pace forward by Europe to resolve the crisis.
0: Uh, in which muddling through becomes a new capital city Hmm. of Europe.
1: You know, just that kind of muddling through, I don't think they're muddling. I think what's going on, and I've spoken to this in the past, I think that Angela Merkel has been telegraphing all along where she's going, and the way it seems to me, she's getting there. In fact, the way you can tell, the way I'm calibrating how much progress Merkel's making on her grand plan for Europe, which is greater political unity, is I notice how little airtime she looks for. In other words, if Merkel is getting her way, she's really quiet. She doesn't issue a lot of press releases. She doesn't go to high-visibility meetings and invite the press. She just quietly does it behind closed doors. When she gets blocked or stalled, that's when she calls the press in. Notice how quiet Angela's been for the last...
0: Do you think there'll be a, a uh, kind of separatist backlash about a centralized European anything? Uh, any kind of control that sure. then... Sure, that's what well, I think right.
1: I think the French election's about that. Right. But, 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 but I don't think it's relevant because I think either you, either you think Merkel's right and she's got the ability to pull it off or you think she's wrong. What she's saying is when we started this whole adventure in 1957 with the European Common Market, we said we're going for greater political unity after a thousand years of having war with each other. And what we're going to do is we're going to do it step by step by step. Well, we're at the next step. Everybody knew who drafted the European Monetary Union documentation, and I know some of them personally. Were completely aware of the fact that you cannot have a monetary union without a, without some sort of fiscal union, because you can't. That's like allowing people to print money as much as they want, which is what the Greeks did,
0: right? And, and others.
1: Well, now that we know that, and everybody in Europe knows that, the next step in political union is to say, okay, we did the monetary union thing. Okay, how many of you are going to sign up for some political union as well? I predict it will be a majority of those 17 countries. It won't be a, a small majority either; It'll be a large majority.
0: Well, let's hope that this does end up resolving itself, because as everyone's been saying, that's the uh, the big time bomb hanging over the world economy at the moment is whether Europe resolves its issues or not. Anyway, Ronaldo, we're winding. By the way, you know the other
1: thing to watch besides how quiet Angela Merkel is, which I think is the best indication. Mm-hmm. People should be watching the Swiss franc. To me, the Swiss franc is like a barometer. I mean, those folks in Switzerland, they're really smart and they're really financially driven. And if you watch out what the pressures and how they deal with the pressure on the Swiss franc, it gives you some sense of where they think it's coming out. And the betting, the way I'm seeing the way I read the franc right now, they're betting Angela's going to win, and I'm betting she is too.
0: Well, good to hear that. Um, let's look here, and, and we're basically uh, three minutes away from the end of our show. Time to kind of wrap this up, and uh, your last minute closing thoughts on where yeah, we are my, today and I where to start, you
1: think we're headed. I want to end where I started, which is, Howard, I, I implore people, as the economy starts to pick up, please, let's not take our eye off the ball. Keep the pressure on the politicians, particularly in the United States, but I'm saying this is true of every country in the world right now. Keep the pressure on jobs, jobs, jobs. The problem in this country is not that we exported too many jobs. Six jobs out of seven in this country are service workers. They can't be exported because they live here.
0: And I may and remind 7th, people that we are still the world's largest manufacturing economy, despite and, all the illusions that we're not a manufacturing nation.
1: Yeah, and not only that, but our manufacturing sector has grown in each of the last four quarters. So we're. we're and by the way, the interesting comment that was made to me um, by someone this morning was, "Yeah, but the manufacturing sector is getting bigger by having more machines, so there's fewer people running the factories." Yes, that's true. But automation always helps you then open more factories because you become more competitive. See, the argument against the Industrial Revolution at the turn of the 19th century was, gee, we can't have machines doing this because then what will the people do? And the answer is they'll have even better jobs because they'll be running the machines. And, of course, that led to the huge increase in wealth the Industrial Revolution provided. So we're, we're sitting here at the same, same juncture. Keep the politicians focused on jobs. And keep the world focused on green energy. We must get off of fossil fuel. The addiction is killing us. It is suicidal. It's worse than smoking cigarettes. We've got, because, it, because it's clear we've already, the, the planet has a fever and the damage, and I'd like to do this next time, Howard, next week. I'd like to talk a little bit about an update on climate change because it hasn't been on the front page for a while and it needs to be.
0: Well, let's definitely do that for next show. Um, I should mention, before you all take off and leave, that our next show, again, is is in March. It is on the second Thursday of the month. And if you want to mark it on your calendars, it is the 8th of March at 11 a.m. Again, second Thursday of the month. We'll be back on the air. In between, if you'd like to send us any questions, any comments, anything you want to see us consider, please shoot us a note at info at worldbusiness.org.
1: In fact, Howard, let me let me add to that. It, it, what really gives me juice, folks, is when I hear that more and more people are listening to the show, and when I get questions ahead of time sent in to us for us to, to deal with. Hearing back from you really gets me going. It gives it, it gives me the energy to keep digging into the facts, keep looking at the questions, and keep reporting it back to you. So if you want to know how to keep me going since you're not paying me for this, it's to give me the support of knowing that you're not only listening, you're telling your friends to listen, and you're sending in questions before the show of what you'd like dealt with, because that's what the Academy is here to do. We're an organization that's designed to serve, and what we try to provide people with is the kind of insight they'd get if they were a senior executive at Goldman Sachs, but you don't have to go there to do it. We'll we'll do it for you over the show.
0: Right. And again, that email address is very simple. It's just info at worldbusiness.org. And with that, Ronaldo, our time is up. It's time to say goodbye to our listeners. And uh, we hope you tune in again next month for us.
1: Thanks very thank- much, Howard.
0: Thank you, too, Ronaldo. And thank you all for listening. Bye bye now.